listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. This morning, we're going to look at an event that I believe is one of the most important events in the story of Jesus' life on earth, in the, in, as recorded in the Gospels, I believe it's one of the most important events. You know, if you were to sit down and make a list of the top five events in Jesus' life as recorded by the Gospels, you know, I think you'd have to include his birth, you know, the incarnation, right? And then I would argue his baptism needs to go in there. The baptism of Christ, very important. Then, of course, you know, his death, resurrection, the ascension, all of that. But alongside of all of these very important events, I think you have to include the transfiguration of Christ. When we properly understand the meaning of the transfiguration, I think you've got to say it's absolutely one of the most important events in the life of Jesus as recorded by the Gospels. So this morning, I want us to look at and examine this transfiguration as we Look at this message, the supremacy of Christ. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. We're going to read this together and then we will pray. Verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Heavenly Father, we just gather together united in worship of Christ. And these next few moments are another expression of our worship. We have prayed We have sung, and now we're here to listen to the Spirit of God speaking through the frailty of a human communicator, a flawed communicator, but we recognize the power of your Spirit is here in this room. And we're asking you, Lord, over these next few moments as we endeavor to put away any distraction, whether internally, externally, anything else that would try to occupy our minds, we lay that aside as an act of worship, And we invite you this morning to speak to us and challenge us. And may your agenda be carried out in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is quite a remarkable story here, the transfiguration of Christ. There's a lot of interesting things that grab my attention when I look at this story. I think probably the very first thing that grabs my attention is this sudden appearance of Two men from a totally different age. So here's Jesus. He takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up this mountain 
Traditionally, you know, we call it Mount Tabor. We're not sure exactly, but a lot of people believe it's Mount Tabor in northern Galilee. And so they ascend up Mount Tabor and they're going to pray. And as they're praying, Jesus is transfigured. And his face, one gospel writer tells us, begins to shine like the brightness of the sun. And then all of a sudden, from 14 centuries earlier, Moses shows up. And Moses is now on the mountain. Some of you might remember, Moses wasn't even allowed to enter into the promised land. And yet here he is now with Jesus and the other three. And then, all of a sudden, from nine centuries earlier, Elijah the Tishbite shows up, this fiery prophet of Israel from ages before. And now Elijah's on the mountain with them. Now, it's not too difficult, I think, to ascertain what Moses and Elijah represent for us in his story, because after all, they are representative figures. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet, represent for us the law and the prophets, or what you and I call the Old Testament. So you could really say it this way. The Mount of Transfiguration is where the Old Testament meets the New Testament. It really is where we turn the page from the old to the new and the law and the prophets hand the baton off to the one who's going to take it and bring it through to its completion and to fulfill their purpose. But what is the purpose of the law and the prophets? I want to put this statement on the screen. I just think it's so important for us, not only in terms of this message, but if we're going to understand the the central plot line of the story of Scripture We need to understand this. The purpose of the law and the prophets was to begin to form Israel into a just and worshiping society. That's why God gave the law. That's why God gave the prophets. Because God wants to begin to form these ancient, morally primitive people who know nothing but idolatry and immorality and injustice. He wants to take them and begin to form them into a just and worshiping people. So if you go back to, you know, the very beginning of Israel's story, here they are, they're in bondage in Egypt, they've been slaves for 400 years, their whole life is anchored in slavery, all they know is Egyptian culture. So in other words, all they know is the idolatry of Egypt, all they know is the immorality of Egypt, all they know is the injustice they've been subject to for 400 years, that's their whole world, they don't know anything beyond that. And and God raises up Moses, and he's going to use Moses miraculously to lead Egypt, uh, to lead Israel out of slavery, out of Egyptian bondage, and he's going to begin to lead them in the trajectory of the promised land. And along that journey, somewhere along the way, uh, Moses ascends up Mount Sinai, another mountain, and he receives from Yahweh the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And he takes the Ten Commandments, descends Mount Sinai, and then he gives it to Israel. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can divide them into two sections. The first four commandments have to do with proper worship. What are the first four Ten Commandments? No other gods, no idols or images, don't play around with God's name, and keep the holy day holy. So the first four commandments have to do with beginning to form Israel into a properly worshiping people. 
The remaining six commandments are about just treatment of neighbors. So what are the remaining six? Honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, don't covet. So the Ten Commandments taken together, and really beyond that, the entire Jewish law, the Torah, can be divided into those two things. The whole purpose is to begin to form Israel into a just and worshiping society. How many of you are with me so far? All right. Over the next few hundred years, God begins to send prophets. He unleashes these prophets. These prophets are, are God's mouthpiece to Israel, and these prophets poetically are going to call Israel to account. They're going, they're going to engage in a form of uh, self-critique. And, and taken together, the general message of the prophets is this. The prophets say, Israel, we're God's people. We're called to be different. We're called to be other. We're called to be set apart. Don't be seduced by the immorality and the idolatry and the injustice of the pagan world around us. Instead, we're called to be faithful in our worship to the one true God and to manifest that faithfulness in the way we justly treat our neighbors. All right? So the law and the prophets comprise what we call the Old Testament. And it's in Jesus that they find their true successor. It's Jesus who is going to take the vision that they were always aiming towards but could never quite get there. Jesus is going to take that vision and he's going to make it a reality. He's going to fulfill it. Which is precisely what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at it in a few months. But in Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus announces, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. No, 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 no. I've come to fulfill them. That's exactly what Jesus does, says. I'm, I'm, I'm here to take that vision and bring it through to completion. I'm here to take that baton and carry it all the way to the finish line. But Peter misunderstands this. This is not how Peter understands the sudden appearance of Moses and Elijah on Mount Tabor at the Transfiguration. And I got to tell you, I, I have a hard time blaming Peter with that. Because think of it, he's overwhelmed. I mean, put yourself in Peter's position. You're a first century Jew in Israel. You're a religious Jew. You're, you're a relatively devout Jew. And you're just on this mountain and you're praying like you would pray any other day. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. I mean, Peter's stunned. He's overwhelmed. He's terrified. And what does Peter do? Well, Peter does what Peter always does in moments like that. He begins to talk. And Peter says, oh, this is awesome. I can't believe it, man. We've got Moses right here. We've got Elijah over here. This is incredible. And I've got an idea. I've got an idea. We're going to build three memorial tabernacles. And we're going to build one tabernacle over here for Moses. Moses, the great, Moses, the great founder of our faith. The lawgiver, we're going to build a nice tabernacle for Moses. He deserves it. And over here on this side of the mountain, we're going to build another memorial tabernacle for the prophet Elijah. He's the one that called down fire from heaven, man. We put out a chair every Passover for Elijah. He never shows up. And now he's here. So we'll have a tabernacle over here for Moses. We'll have a tabernacle over here for, for Elijah. And Jesus, you're going to love this part. Jesus, you're going to love this. We're going to build another tabernacle right in the middle, right between these two greats. We're going to build a tabernacle for you. 
And so we're going to have three tabernacles side by side. These great men, Moses, Jesus, Elijah, on equal footing. It's going to be awesome. Then we'll promote it. We'll sell tickets. We're going to get the word out. We'll have these trams that take people up the mountain. They'll be able to get out and take pictures of these three spiritual giants, shoulder to shoulder, Moses, Jesus, Elijah. It's going to be awesome. And then right in the middle of all of that, there's a voice that speaks from the heavens. And I think in the original Greek, it says something like this. Shut up. <laughs> this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Peter passes out. And Jesus walks over and he touches Peter and he jostles James and John. I mean, they both had way more than they could handle. Their minds are exploded. And these three men open their eyes and they begin to look around and Moses is gone. And Elijah's nowhere to be found. The only one who remains is Jesus. Because listen to me. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything God has to say. That's my sermon today. That's the golden nugget I want you to take home with you this morning. Jesus is what God has to say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to me. The Bible is not God. The Bible does not belong in the Trinity. But what the Bible does is it points us to God. And Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate, God among us. Because God could not say everything God wanted to say to us in a book, God said to us in the form of a human life, the living Christ, the true, pure, perfect, unadulterated Word of God. Now, the Bible is the Word of God, but only in a penultimate sense. What the Bible does is it points us to God. What the Bible does infallibly, what the Bible does inerrantly, is points us to Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. The story ends, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, the law and the prophets have their place. In the midst of the pitch blackness of the pagan night, the moon and the stars give Israel enough light to be able to see and find their way around. You understand the law, we can see the law as sort of like the moon. You know, if you're out camping out the middle of nowhere and there's no electricity and there's no artificial lighting, the moon can give you enough light to be able to see around and find your way forward and meander around. And in the midst of the intense, dark, pagan immorality and idolatry of the culture that ancient Israel found itself planted in, it was the law, it was the moon that gave them the light they needed to be able to see clearly enough to grope their way forward. And the stars are like the prophets. You know, if you know what you're doing, you can use the constellations to navigate. 
And so you have the Isaiah star, and you coordinate that with the Jeremiah star, and the Ezekiel star, and the Daniel star, and the Hosea, and Amos, and Micah, and Habakkuk, and all of those stars. And so together, the law, the prophets, the moon, and the stars, in the midst of the the raging darkness of the ancient world, they give Israel a way to find their way forward and to see clearly enough to, to grope their way forward. But listen to me, folks. When the sun of righteousness rises... And the new day begins to dawn with the coming of Christ. The moon and the stars, they're still there, but they recede. They fade into the background. Why? Because the one whose face shines brighter than the sun has appeared. Because Jesus is what God has to say. Let's work on this a little bit. So again, Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to this in a few months. Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He announces, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where where have they heard that said before? Somebody tell me. Where have they heard that said? Old Testament, the law. It's written right there in the law, in in the books of Moses. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus shows up and announces, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you this. I'm saying this to you. Turn the other cheek. A few verses later. Love your enemies. Now, do you understand how provocative a statement like that would be in first century Israel? This is why numerous times throughout the Gospels, when Jesus gets done teaching a crowd, it says something like this. And they were all amazed at his teaching. You'll see it several times. They were all amazed. And every time it gives a reason, here's what the reason is. They were all amazed at what he had to say. Why? Because he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes. When the scribes taught, they always had to appeal to the Torah. The Torah says this. The Torah says that. The Torah says this. Jesus shows up and says, I'm telling you this. I'm saying this to you. And see, this is what we have to understand as a Christian church. Jesus is not just one revelation of God among many. He's not just one revelation of God that we put side by side with every other revelation of God, just like Peter wanted to do with the tabernacles. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God that sums up and completes all others. Somebody say amen. Amen. And we've got to understand that. Because if we don't, We start getting mixed up about things. And to be honest with you, sometimes I think there are people that get intentionally mixed up. And they actually, if you can believe it, use the Bible to hide from Jesus. You understand the cleverest way to hide from Jesus is to do it like this. Not now, Jesus. Not now. Jesus, I know you've called me to love my enemies. I know you've called me to bless my persecutors and and forgive my transgressors. And and I know that you spread out your arms on the hardwood of the cross and you prayed over your executioners. Father, forgive them for they know that what they do. And I know you've called me to follow your example, take up my cross and do the same. But right now I'm reading in Joshua. (laughs) And I found this passage where Joshua pulls out a sword and slaughters his enemies. And that's just anointed, man. The spirit's all over this. I'm just, I'm going to pull up my highlighter and highlight that. That's such a good passage. Yes, amen. (laughs) Let me tell you a secret, and it's not really a secret because I think a lot of us know this intuitively. But if you're clever enough to do it, you can pretty much take the Bible and twist it around 
to say just about anything you want it to say and support just about anything you want to support. People do it all the time. I'll prove it to you. Sometime this week, come bring me your list. Bring me your list and say, Ryan, here's my list of things I want to believe. Here's the list of things I want to believe theologically, politically, socially, just about life in general. Here's my list of things I want to believe. Give me your list and give me five minutes. And I will write down a list of Bible verses that will prove that you're right. But you see, all you've done is you've just taken the Bible and you've turned it into your errand boy to do your bidding. And there's something about the living Christ that transcends all of that. So for example, one day the Pharisees find, they, they, they catch this woman in the act of adultery. Somehow. I don't know how you do that. That's between them and God. But they've caught a woman in the act of adultery. And they're going to bring her to Rabbi Jesus. They find him, they take this woman, they throw her at his feet. And they say, Jesus, we've caught this woman in the act of adultery. She's guilty. Moses and the law tell us that we need to stone such a woman. What do you say? And you know what? So far, they're absolutely right. If you're going to chapter and verse it, if you're just going to go, well, the Bible says, they're right. The Bible does say to stone Israelite adulterers. So they say, all right, here it is. We've got, we've got this woman, caught her in adultery. She's right in front of you. Moses, the law tells us, stone this woman. What do you say? And Jesus just ignores them. And he begins to write in the dust. We want to know what he wrote. People speculate about it all the time. We don't know what he wrote. If I had to take a stab at it, I, I wonder if it might have something to do with Jeremiah. When Jeremiah said, because of the hardness of their hearts, their doom will be written in the dust. Just a guess. But they keep persisting. They won't let up. They keep badgering him. Finally, Jesus responds. But he doesn't say, okay, you're right. You know, the Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Better grab a rock. He says, okay. I mean, you got the Bible and all. But how about we do it like this? How about we let the one without sin cast the first stone? And the Bible says one by one, starting with the oldest, they dropped their stones and they left. Because just with that one statement, he dislodges them out of this demonic mob mentality and he forces them to examine their own lives and think as, think as an individual. And they drop their stones and leave. A second story. Jesus and his disciples are traveling south from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's like a six or seven day journey. And they're traveling through Samaritan territory. This would be like Southern California and Northern California. You got to get to Northern, you got to get through Northern California to get to Oregon. I don't know, that, that kind of fell flat. But. <laughs> they're traveling through Samaritan territory. They're, they're dependent on the hospitality of Samaritans. And so one, one day, it's getting late, it's, it's, it's evening. They need to really find a place to stop and rest. And just as they make it into the outskirts of one particular Samaritan village, they are refused hospitality. And James and John, who Jesus has nicknamed the sons of thunder, they have an idea. And they say, Jesus, 
You know that story in the Bible where the prophet Elijah called down fire from heaven and consumed his enemies? Can we do that? That would be so awesome, Jesus. It's in the Bible, you know. And you know what? They're absolutely right. It is in the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 1. The king of Israel wants to arrest the prophet Elijah, so he sends a captain with 50 men to go arrest him. And Elijah says when they arrive, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume all of you. And boom, just like that, they're all consumed. So the king of Israel sends a second captain with another group of 50 men to go arrest him. They show up. Old man, we're here to apprehend you. And Elijah's like, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume all of you. And and boom, just like that, they're all burned up. And so then the king of Israel sends a third captain with another 50 guys. And this poor soul, like he's already heard what's happened to these other two groups. So he comes in on hands and knees saying, sir, I am begging for my life. I'm just between a rock and a hard place here. Please, I'm just trying to do my job. And so Elijah capitulates and and goes along with them. Well, apparently, this is a favorite Bible story of James and John, (laughs) the sons of thunder. And so when the Samaritan village refuses to let them in, they recall this favorite story of theirs. And they get this idea and they tell Jesus, Jesus, can we, and by we, we really mean you, can you call down fire from heaven and burn up this village? And listen to how Jesus responds. He says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. And I just want to say this as a side point. Do you know that it is possible for a person to have exhaustive knowledge of the Bible and pristine theology and be of the total wrong spirit? says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy lives, even if you have a Bible verse for it. The Son of Man has come to save. And see, that's what I'm trying to tell you this morning, is that it's not just biblical principles we're after. That term is so unwieldy, it covers so much ground. For example, I can show you how to operate a system of slavery on the basis of biblical principles. Well, we've got slavery, but we do it biblically. I mean, we scoff at it today. It sounds silly. That's exactly what people were saying no less than 160 years ago in the pre-abolition South. There were churches and pastors. I can show you the transcripts of their sermons. They're not just excusing slavery. They're defending it and promoting it, using the Bible to do so. And yet right now, there's not a single one of us in this room or watching online that believes that slavery is anything but an unmitigated, horrific, demonic sin. And why do we believe that? It's not because we've got a verse for it. It's because we've been informed by the light of the living Christ. So it's not just biblical justice we're after. It's Christ-like justice. It's not just biblical manhood that we're after. I mean, how many retreats and men's conferences have been based on the theme of biblical manhood? Well, I mean, there's a lot of men in the Bible. Who's going to be your model? Noah, passed out drunk in his tent. Abraham, who's, who's a fairly godly man, but except when he's like, you know what, Sarah? Yeah, she's more like my, my sister. So if you want to take her into your harem, that's totally cool with me. Or Moses, as he buries the bodies in the sand. And don't even get me started on David. We don't, want, we don't even want to touch that. 
See, listen, it's not just biblical manhood we're after. What we're after is, what does it mean to be a man who's devoted to the, the, the authority of Christ, who's learning to become more like Jesus? And these other men, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they are, they're great men who are only helpful to me as much as they are pointing me forward to Christ because that's who I want to be like. And what about biblical womanhood? I'm sure a lot of you women have been to some retreats or conferences out there somewhere where you've been Proverbs 31 You familiar with Proverbs 31? It's, it's a lovely poem about a woman that is obviously written from the perspective of a Bronze Age man. And, and he's lauding the value of his wife who's up before dawn spinning flax. You know, I don't even know what flax is, but she's up before dawn spinning it. And this Bronze Age man likes to have his flax spun and he's happy to have a woman to do it for him. Now listen, it's a lovely poem and there are some very important truths in it. But it's also obvious that it's written from a time that was very patriarchal where women were seen as the chattel property of men. Now listen, if you're a woman in here who likes to get up before dawn spinning flax, more power to you. I don't want to take that away from you. But what if you're a woman who's working the late shift to support her family and you go to bed late and you don't even get up out of bed until afternoon. Does that mean you don't have any worth or value in the eyes of Christ? You see, it's not just biblical womanhood we're after. It's what does it mean to be a woman informed by Christ? That's the goal. That's the question. But you see, that's not just as simple as chapter and versing it. That means we've got to learn how to engage with the living Christ. Because Jesus is what God has to say. Now, if you were to ask me, you know, maybe, maybe it's conceivable that somebody could be listening to this message wondering, Ryan, are you, are you, uh, are you wanting us to throw out the, the Old Testament? Oh, contraire. Absolutely not. In fact, if you're going to follow the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament is going to take you into the Old Testament all the time. The New Testament is inextricably connected to the Old Testament. And I want you to know, as, as the new pastor here, I read from the Old Testament every day of my life. Not only that, I pray the Psalms every day of my life. It is inspired Holy Scripture. But what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is the, the Jewish canonical text appended to the beginning of our Christian scriptures. And why do we have this prequel that's three times larger than, than, than the New Testament? It's because Jesus, our Savior, is Jewish. And the Old Testament gives us the story of how we get to Jesus. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know more and more the, the character of the one true God, but it doesn't reach its culmination until we get to Jesus. So you've got to stay on the trail until you get to the Word made flesh. So I read the Old Testament. I call it Holy Scripture. But I never go into the Old Testament unescorted. Jesus is my sponsor into the Old Testament. The only reason why I as a Gentile have any business wandering around in the Jewish canonical text is because Jesus, my Savior, is Jewish and Jesus takes me into the Old Testament. And sometimes 
as he's taking me into the Old Testament, he might say, Ryan, be careful right there. Oh, don't latch on to that. Don't take that passage and use it as an excuse and justification for violent retribution of your enemies. Because come follow me into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to be saying something new. So that's how I read the Bible. Violent retribution against our enemies can be justified using the Bible, and it has been. The institution of slavery can be justified using the Bible, and it has been. Viewing women as the property of men can be justified using the Bible, and it has been. But when the light that shines brighter than the sun appears in the face of Christ, and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We now must rethink everything in light of Christ because Jesus is what God has to say. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.